Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 33. Please open your Bibles with me and follow along as I read today's passage. Starting in 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we continue uh, our study just right through the book of Ephesians. And if you have uh, a gathering guide, there's an outline in there, and you'll notice that this is part two of what will be a four-part section titled The Spirit-Filled Home. Uh, last week, we started with the wives because, well, that's where Paul started, and we're just going to follow the text. And today, we're going to focus on the husbands. And, and I want to just say right here at the top, if you're here this morning and you're not married, whether male or female, I want to assure you this text absolutely applies to you. And because this text focuses on love, and it focuses on Jesus, and all of us need Jesus, and all of us are called to love. So, so this text is far more applicable than you might have originally thought. What's more, if you're here and you actually do desire to get married, and you're a young man, well, what a great place to start. You want to be thinking about these things already. And if you're here and you're a female and you desire to get married, this is the kind of thing that helps you to create categories in what you would be looking for in a husband. So there's a lot here, a lot to cover, and we need to go to work. So I want to start real quick just getting us into the flow of this by just quickly refreshing our memory of how we got to this point. Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 tell us all about our stunning and amazing calling to which we've been called as Christians. Here we were told that we were chosen from before the foundation of the world, predestined 
to adoption as sons, sealed with the Holy Spirit so that we would in fact make it to the end, to our glorious inheritance. We were told that we were dead spiritually, but Christ made us alive. We were told that we've been saved by grace through faith, and in so doing, we're actually it's new creation, God's new creation, created in Christ for good works. As a result of all of that, when you come to chapters 4 through 6, he gets right into the how now we should live in light of these glorious realities. And thus we've seen that we are to work hard to maintain the unity we've been brought into. We are to stop thinking and living like unbelievers. We are to walk in love, obviously connected with where we're going today. We're to walk as children of light. We are to watch very carefully how we walk, how we live, as we want to live like those who are wise and not as fools. Fools, for example, get all filled up with wine and let that control them. But we are to be filled with the Spirit so that He controls us. And when He does, we've seen that there are expected results Results like singing. We sing to one another. We sing to God. Results like thanksgiving in all things to God. And then we see that we're expected to live a certain way within our homes. Last week, we saw the first part of this, that wives are called to submit to their own husband in a like manner that the church submits to Christ. Today, we see that the husband is called to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And so let me invite you to turn with me, if you're not already there, to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, I want to begin by rereading verses 25 to 27. Here he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blame. Here we see that whereas the spirit-filled wife is expected to submit to her husband's leadership, the spirit-filled husband is expected to love his wife. And it's important that we remember that verse 21 looms large over all of this passage. Specifically, all that's commanded here is under the broad rubric of being done out of reverence for, or we said last week a better translation is, in the fear of Christ. This idea of the fear of the Lord is a common biblical theme that in no way conveys terror or intimidation for believers. That seems to be why recent translators have preferred the word reverence. And so maybe they go with reverence to make it more palatable, sell more Bibles. But then all the commentators come back and want to remind us that while maybe more palatable, reverence does fall a bit short of what's meant here since The fear of the Lord brings a sense of awe as we consider He is the eternal King of kings. He is Lord over everything. There's not one thing that He's not Lord over. And one day, every single knee will bow before Him, believer or unbeliever, 
It's just a matter of whether it's in humble submission and worship or whether it's on the way to eternal judgment. And it's in light of Jesus' glorious power, in light of his ultimate authority, that all Christians, all Christians, are to submit themselves first to Christ and then to whatever authority Jesus has placed over us, thus wives to husbands that he starts with. For the husband, we need to be clear, this still controls us, right? This, this fear of the Lord is what motivates and controls the love we're to have for our wives. And see, right off the bat, the husband must be clear, Jesus is everyone's ultimate authority. And thus, any authority, any authority we have as husbands is only that which has been delegated to us by Jesus. And thus, there, there should be a reverent fear of Christ and an understanding. I'm under Him that drives and controls the role He's given to us of loving, sacrificial leader. And this love is a present imperative in the original, and I point that out because it helps us to see that not only is it a command, but it's a command to a consistent lifestyle. It's not one and done like I think we men like to do. It's not something that we do when it's convenient or, brothers, when we want something. It's also not conditional. In other words, there is absolutely no sense in which Paul is saying, husbands, love your wives if they're being particularly lovely. Love your wives if they're doing what you want them to do. No. Said last week, both the husband and the wife, precisely because we are empowered by God's own spirit, we are able to live out the role Jesus has given us regardless as to whether or not our spouse does his or her part. I like how Clinton Arnold puts this in his commentary. He says, quote, The present imperative of the verb love indicates that this kind of love should be the regular and hallmark feature of the husband's affections and behavior toward his wife. It makes no provision for the wife to earn the husband's favor. Let me say that again. It makes no provision for the wife to earn the husband's favor. The command entails the husband's responsibility regardless of his wife's behavior, health condition, appearance, or any other potential deterrent. The fact that Christ loved the church even in her most unlovely and unbecoming state defines the love commitment that Christ expects from a Christian husband. His love should be unconditional, end quote. This, of course, leads us right into the how question, and it is a high calling indeed. For Christ says that the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Now, this is not a new idea to Paul here in Ephesians reserved only for the husbands. It's not a new idea in the New Testament in general. Uh, just think of Ephesians, just a few verses earlier, still in chapter 5, back up in verse 2, Paul said to all believers, walk in love. Listen, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Uh, notice that's basically the exact same exhortation 
given to the whole church in verse 2. And so also Jesus in John 13 says to all of his people, a new command I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You're to love one another. And it's by this, he says, that all people will know you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. So, so this is an expectation of every single Christian, namely that we love one another. And, and this, this one another here is a love specifically for brothers and sisters in Christ. That, that's what's going on in these passages. This is what we call the love of the brethren, loving one another, others Jesus has died for, with a like kind of love that Jesus has for us. And see, as the husband, who's called to be the leader in the home, the, the head of his wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, the husband then must, therefore, lead by example, seeking to lay down a beautiful picture of Christ-like love for all in his home to see and emulate. Yes, we said last week the wife is to submit to her husband, which also is not conditional. It's not saying submit to your husband if you think he's leading precisely the way you'd want him to. That being said, for every husband filled with the Spirit who rightly lives in the fear of Christ, who honors Jesus as our ultimate authority, our desire, brothers, should be to make our wife's call to submit as desirable and beautiful and lovely as it could possibly be, as we're loving our wives with a like kind of love Jesus has shown to his church. And Paul goes into great detail with regards to Christ's love for his church. From the end of verse 25 on down to verse 27. I want you to look back at those verses with me. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he, Christ, might sanctify her, the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Here I do want you to notice on your sermon outline, I'm calling this a Christological aside, specifying that husbands cannot do what Paul is talking about here. And this is important for us to recognize because there are some bizarre teachings out there. You might just think about a husband washing his wife. Some bizarre teachings that flow from these verses that actually miss the overarching and very important point being made in this text. See, Paul's well known for mentioning Jesus or God the Father, and then he just rolls off into effusive praise for who he is or or what he's done, all related to the point, but definitely an aside, and then he comes back to the point he was making which is what's going on here. I'm going to point this out because we need to be clear starting at the end of verse 25 with he gave himself up for her, culminating in verse 27 that she might be holy and without blemish. Husband, you can't do that. Went to a volleyball game the other day. Did something they weren't supposed to and everybody chants, you can't do that. Well, that's for us right here, husband. You can't do that. You can't do that for your wife. And wife, you shouldn't look for your husband to do this. Look to Jesus, because praise God, he's already done it. 
We've already seen this sort of thing in a smaller scale up in verse 23, where he said, the husband's the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. The husband is not the wife's savior in any conceivable stretch of the imagination. And Paul was clear on that, which is why in the original he starts verse 24 with a strong adversative conjunction, but, sadly, some of the translations say now to smooth it out. But the but is important because it was Paul's way of specifying, but, while not the savior, whereas the church submits to Christ, so also the wife should submit to the husband. And that clarity is important. And it's likewise important that we're all clear that the end of verse 25 through 27 is talking about Jesus and making much of Christ's amazing, saving love for his church. So what did Jesus do? How did Jesus show love for his church? Well, to begin, he gave himself up for her, and this is clearly referring to his going to the cross In John 10, 18, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. He says, I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. He gave himself up. Philippians 2, Paul gets at the same thing when he tells us that though Jesus was indeed God, God the Son, he didn't count equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage, but he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus gave himself up for his church by going to the cross. And let me just say, if you're here with us today and you've never trusted in Christ, this is the most important thing I will say to you all morning. All of us have rebelled against God, starting with the guy behind the pulpit. We all deserve his wrath. But Jesus came on a mission. Jesus came to die. He came to bear the penalty we deserve to bear. He willingly went to the cross to bear your punishment. If you will believe wholeheartedly in your need for a Savior. And that Jesus was and is God's answer to your biggest need. Friend, I would implore you, look to Christ even today and believe the gospel and be saved. For the rest of us, we see that Jesus' love for the church is seen in his death on the cross. He gave himself up for his church. He willingly went to the cross for his church. And again, no husband can do that. And in and through his work on the cross, he sanctified her. And husbands, we can't do that either. And by the way, the feminine pronouns here in verses 25 to 27, don't let those confuse you. They're all clearly referring to the church. The sanctifying that he talks about here was accomplished. Look at the flow. It was accomplished by the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Now, there's an already emphasis with perhaps a little bit of a not yet aspect, but, but the clear emphasis here is the already. And I point that out because... We typically use this word with the categories of systematic theology, where justification, for example, is that one-time past event of being made right with God, whereas sanctification is the ongoing process of becoming more like Jesus. But in point of fact, while I do think systematic categories are helpful, and, and they basically hold true, 
The reality is that the New Testament use of these words is not nearly as neat and tidy. So, for example, Paul can speak of being justified. We will be justified. We are being justified, right? Same thing with sanctification. So, for example, 1 Corinthians 6, 11, after rattling off a list of sins of unbelievers, lifestyle of unbelievers, Paul says, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, past action. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And here in Ephesians 5, he's likewise speaking of sanctification in past action. And the past action is that through the cross, Jesus sanctified a people for himself. He, he set us apart for himself. Remember Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So Jesus shows his love by giving himself up at the cross, whereby he set a people apart for himself, having cleansed us by the washing of water with the word. Now, what does that mean? Well, thanks for asking. Uh, I want to start with what it doesn't mean. I, I would agree with most commentators that this is not referring to baptism, as, as it doesn't fit what Paul's doing here. It doesn't fit the context of Ephesians 5. It doesn't fit the greater context of Ephesians. Instead, I would argue what's going on here is this is pointing to a spirit-water connection seen in the prophets that Jesus picks up on in places like John 3 and John 7. And, and we get to that because this whole section, right? We could spend all day on this. This whole section is rife with Old Testament allusions. And here, I think, in concert with some other texts that he's picking up on, I think he's alluding to that great New Covenant text of Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27. And I want you to flip over with me real quick. Ezekiel 36. Sort of go to the middle of your Bible and take a right-hand turn. You should find Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27. This is Yahweh looking ahead to future time, the new covenant. He says, starting in verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you. I want you to notice the water-spirit connection here. I'll sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So here we see this, this link between spirit, water, cleansing. Before Christ, we were all filthy before the Lord because of our sin. And so here in Ephesians 5, in and through Jesus' work on the cross, he, he sets us apart for himself, having cleansed us of our sins by the washing of water. Remember the water-spirit analogy. The washing of water, the washing with the Spirit, with the Word. And the Word here is the Word of the Gospel. We've already established how back when we looked at the comparison between Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, how the Spirit of God uniquely works through the Word of God, 
So that here, putting all this together, I think we can say that we're cleansed by the Spirit of God as He illuminates the Word of God, the gospel, whereby we come to believe and we trade in our filthy clothes and put on the righteousness of Christ. Consider Titus 3, 3 through 5 as a bit of a parallel. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. See, all of this is getting at what Jesus has already done for us in what we call the finished work of Jesus, which includes Pentecost, includes the coming of the Holy Spirit. And look why he's done all of this. With another allusion to the Old Testament, almost certainly here picking up on Ezekiel 16, where Yahweh, in that text, was the bridegroom to his covenant people. Here Paul shows us that Jesus is the fulfillment of that. As he dies to set apart his own bride, the church, so that he can present her to himself. Almost certainly, this presentation almost certainly referring to that great last day when he comes again. And because of his work on the church's behalf, look look at the text. She's going to be what every human bride would desire people to say of her, right? She's going to be completely stunning, absolutely beautiful, not a single spot, not, not one blemish, no wrinkle of old age. Those are metaphors for she's going to be completely holy and without blemish. Amen. As one commentator puts it, quote, the bridegroom's love is characterized by the will and power to effect total transformation. He attributes qualities to the bride which she does not possess of her own. This, of course, far transcends what any other husband is able to accomplish for his bride and further confirms this portion of the passage is solely a lesson on Christology. It is also distinguished from the human analogy insofar as Christ not only receives the bride to be his own, but he's also the one who presents the bride he has purified to himself, end quote. I want to dig in on this a bit. This section of Ephesians 5 is absolutely stunning and amazing. When we read it, we should rejoice in Christ. But we won't do that unless we're clear, as I already said, it's about Christ, not husbands. I already said plenty of well-meaning but ill-advised teachings have popped up from this text, and we need to be clear, we can't go to the cross for our wives, we can't sanctify our wives, We can't cleanse them. And heaven for Betsy, we can't wash them with the word, which somehow gets interpreted as reading the Bible to your wife. And if you're struggling with what I'm saying here, ask yourself this question because a similar principle is at play. Not quite apples to apples, but a similar principle. Here's the question. Why don't we do ceremonial foot washings at this church? Why not? Jesus washed the disciples' feet in the night in which he's betrayed, and then he says, if then... Your Lord and teacher have washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. Why don't we? Why has the church historically virtually never done that? It's never been a practice of the church. Not like the Lord's Supper or baptism. 
See there, it's a call to a lifestyle of sacrificial love, sacrificial service. And the rest of John 13 makes that clear. And here too, in Ephesians 5, while we husbands can't be Jesus, we are called to love with a like kind of love that Christ has for His church. So what can we learn? Because it's clearly put here for a reason. And I think we can learn much. First, the overarching principle This is driving home to husbands, is that of sacrificial love, sacrificial leadership. The husband could never be the atoning sacrifice for his wife, but in a like manner that Jesus lays down his life for the church, think Philippians 2, the husband is to lay down his life for his wife. And and this is not, as is often put forward, merely a willingness to pay the ultimate sacrifice. I'd step in front of an axe murderer for that woman. Well, great. So would every unbelieving man I've ever met, unless he's a total coward. And that's easy to throw out there because you know it's probably not going to happen. What is going to happen every single day are those opportunities to die to self and put the needs of your wife above your own. And it's there, brothers, that the rubber meets the road. And I know that as a fellow struggler. Still, you might say, well, I'm the head. I'm the man. I'm the leader of this here castle. And you'd be correct in saying that. Jesus has delegated you that little bit of authority. And as your ultimate authority, he's called you to follow his lead. And there we must be clear. Jesus, in speaking of his leadership, says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. And again, husband, you can't give your life as a ransom for anyone, but you can and must follow Christ's lead in being a sacrificial leader. Listen, the idea of the husband coming home from work and commanding little wifey to bring him his pipe and slippers so he can relax because he's had a hard day, that's a bunch of garbage. doesn't work here because this is a loving, sacrificial leadership called for in the Word of God. And by the way, can I just point out that there are some, even in Christian circles, who want to claim that complementarianism, that's what we're describing here, right? Obviously, when you read this text, it's so clear that men and women equal in essence but have different roles. These roles complement one another. It's beautiful. But there are some within Christian circles who want to argue that complementarianism, understanding of biblical manhood and womanhood in and of itself necessarily leads to abuse, which is a lie directly from the pits of hell. Think about the call to the husband here. His call is to follow Christ's lead, not coming to be served, but to serve. He's called daily to die to self, put the needs of his wife even above his own. Yes, yes, it's true. Her calls to follow her lead, even if he's not the leader of her dreams. But let's be clear, this text, this text never, ever pushes us in the direction of some oppressive scheme where the wife gets no say in the matter. In fact, what I just said blows up another massive misunderstanding of this passage. Namely, that the man makes all the calls And his wife is just to sit down, be quiet, and go along for the ride. Well, sure, the husband's the head. And there may be times in the marriage where, yes, they talk through it, 
But ultimately, he's got to make a tough call and the wife's to follow his lead. But if the husband is putting her needs above his own, as he's called to do, wouldn't he want to listen to her? I would say so. Wouldn't he want to understand where she's coming from on things? Yeah, unless he's a total moron. Wouldn't he want to understand her concerns or her fears? Of course he would. See, rightly lived out. This is beautiful. It's beautiful. And it leads to healthy, happy, unified marriages. But let's not stop just yet. For while the husband can't sanctify his wife, he can't make her right with God in any way. He can make sure, insofar as it depends on him, that they're right with one another. It means he can and must forgive any and all sins she may commit against him. He, may, he must forbear any differences, which is often harder than forgiving. Instructively, in the parallel passage in Colossians 3.19, Paul specifically says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Why would he be embittered against them? Because he's not forgiving. Because he's not forbearing. Or because he's living in that nasty concoction of the two, he's neither forgiving nor forbearing her. And so he's just mad all the time. Now, how about this idea of cleansing and washing of water with the word? Even, even the idea of presenting the church to himself as future-looking. Does this apply in any way? Well, I would submit to you that this is not a biblical injunction for family devotions. Popular terminology these days due to recent literature is family worship with the dad as priest. I already said we don't wash our wife with the word by reading the Bible to her every night. And we know this is true. We absolutely know this is true because, A, you've got to start with how this is speaking of Jesus, and that would be taking that out of context. And, 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 and B, such an understanding would be what theologians love to refer to as an anachronism, which means that we're reading our time back into that time. But see, given that the New Testament was being written when Paul wrote, obviously, and given that the scriptures referred to in the New Testament with about two exceptions, are always referring to the Old Testament. And given that individual families in Paul's day didn't have copies of their own scrolls. No, those were few and far between, typically only in the local synagogue. And given that we know we can be 100% certain that Paul full well expected his very first readers to be able to apply what he was saying, then he can't be arguing for a father as prophet, priest, and king to lead his family every night in reading the Bible. It's an anachronism. Now, don't shoot me on that. I'm not saying the Father is not the leader of the home and that we shouldn't read our Bibles in our home now that we are blessed with Bibles in our home. We absolutely can. I think we should. I'm just saying you're not getting that from this passage. I do, though, think there's a very important principle here in this text that's often missed. I think there's an important principle in this text that's often missed by men who are proud. And it's this, the husband, as the head, under the headship of Christ, should care about the spiritual well-being of his family, and thus he should take the lead in making sure his family is all about the bride of Christ, his church, 
which is known to us only by way of the local church. And thus, 21st century Christian husbands, as well as 1st century Christian husbands, whose aim is to prioritize the spiritual well-being of their wife and kids, must take their family to the local church, where they would all be equipped by the pastors, teachers, who Paul's already said are called to equip the saints so that we all grow into maturity. Do you see? So men, if we want to take the lead spiritually with our family, our first priority, priority number one, is to find a local church where you can be all in. No, I like this church, but I don't trust the leadership. No, I like this church because of the youth group. My kids like the youth, but we don't really like the teaching. No, I like this church because of the rock climbing. No, those statements are nonsensical to the biblical writers. They don't make sense if you understand the local church. Find a local church where you can be all in and lead your wife and kids in what it looks like to love Christ's bride, to love the local church. And there, brothers, we must lead our families in what it looks like to submit to biblical authorities that Jesus has placed over us. You know, it's ironic, painfully ironic. Many a husband has complained about their wife or a child not being submissive. And yet they model that every week in their attitude or how they talk about their own local church where they're called to submit to the leadership of the elders. And thus it shouldn't be a surprise that unsubmissive dads, hear me close men, unsubmissive dads lead to unsubmissive families. And boy, oh boy, we could keep going on that one. But this connection of Christ and the church continues on. And we've got to press on for time's running short because you don't give me two hours to preach. Paul obviously knows that a besetting sin of most husbands is self-centeredness. We're all about ourselves. And thus he gives his second of third command to love your wife. This time coming from a different, though intimately related angle. Look at verses 28 through 31. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Again, we have the command for the husband to love his wife, only this time he makes what appears at first pass to be a real turn towards the practical, saying that the husband should love their wives as they love their own bodies. He, he leans in on this, doesn't he? He says, no one ever hated his flesh. And by the way, you need to keep that word in mind because he's teeing up where he's going in his quotation of Genesis 2. But for now, he's using body and flesh interchangeably and says, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nurtures it and cares for it. And let me just say, exceptions don't negate the rule, right? Some want to say, well, some people hate their body, right? They've done terrible things to themselves. Obviously not the point. It's like the Proverbs. He, he's speaking in generalities to make a point. And so just consider for a moment some of the many ways men care for themselves pretty consistently. How about food? 
I think we do a pretty good job feeding ourselves. Look around the room. I don't think we've missed very many meals. How about hydration? First thing I do when I wake up in the morning is I get a big glass of water. Feel parched. Need to hydrate. Got to take care of myself. Shelter. Right? We can make sure we've got a good place to live. Thermostat's in the right place. We give ourselves sleep. Perhaps exercise. When we sustain an injury, let's call it an open wound. We don't walk around saying, hey, look at my wound. It's gaping. I think I'm just going to sit around and bleed out. No, we tend to it. Right? We take care of ourselves. When we're struggling emotionally, we do what we think was going to help comfort us. We take care of our own spiritual well-being. At least we should. And the point here is the husband does all that for himself. That's assumed because he's self-centered. He's going to take care of himself. But what about your wife? See, Paul's saying, husbands, make sure you're taking care of her at least as well as you're taking care of yourself. And the reason this is awesome, is found in the flow of the argument. The reason is because the husband and wife are in, flat, are in fact one flesh. That's where the whole flow of the text is going with this quotation of Genesis 2 down in verse 31. And speaking of the flow here, we need to recognize that while giving husbands something very practical to grab hold of, taking care of our wives as we take care of ourselves, he's also, and most importantly, still focused on Christ and the church. Up in verse 23, he introduced the idea of the body. There the church was said to be Christ's body. Here then the husband is to love his wife as his own body, and so he's making that connection. No one ever hated his own flesh. Husband and wife are one flesh in verse 31, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Again, because we are members of his body. And so now the comparison is this. Jesus loves, cherishes, nurtures the church because we are intimately connected to him. Get your head around that. We're we're part of him. When we come to saving faith, we're abiding in Christ, to use Jesus' language. Or to use Paul's favorite terminology, we're, we're in Christ. Husband is to love, cherish, and nurture his wife because she, in a very real way, is now a part of him. When we enter into that covenant of marriage, the two become one flesh. And that doesn't mean we individually lose our personalities or various uniqueness, but it does mean that we are joined together in a very profound way. And here Paul goes on to tell us that this is actually a great mystery. Look at verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This is the sixth time in Ephesians that Paul has used this word mystery. He consistently uses it as something that was hidden in the past that's now been revealed. And so this is stunning. Paul says that what's clear now is that marriage, something that God ordained in eternity past, marriage was, is, always will be all about pointing people to the beautiful relationship between Christ and his church. Paul's telling us that marriage was ordained by God at the very beginning of creation, you could say before creation, as a God-ordained type to point to its fulfillment, Christ and the church. Think about it. Right at the very beginning of the Bible, we see that God created them, male and female. And by the way, you lose that, you lose all of this 
That's why, as a church, we must hold fast and fight for the biblical one-man, one-woman understanding of marriage. Right at the beginning of the Bible, we see that God ordained marriage between one man and one woman to live in covenant fidelity to one another with the husband loving his wife as a servant leader, the wife willingly submitting to his lead, all for the purpose, Paul says, because that points to the glorious union between Christ and the church. That means every time you look at a married couple in love, we're to think of the great and awesome love Christ has for his church. When we see a husband lovingly sacrificing for his bride, we should think of Jesus laying down his life for his bride. When you see a wife submit to Christ, we should think about how the church submits to Christ. Hence, the final exhortations, just rehashing, really. However, let each of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husbands. At the end of it, he says, husbands, love. Love your wives as yourself. You're one flesh, and this points to Jesus. And wives, respect. This is interesting. This is actually the same word found up in verse 21. Talk about fearing Christ. This is bookends to this discussion. Wives, he says, are to have this reverent fear of their husbands in a like manner of that fear, respect to Jesus. And I'm out of time, I, I know that, so I want to end with this. Get the caricatures out of the way. Archie Bunker, husband, little dutiful wife running around, bringing him a pipe and slippers, that garbage does not hold up to this text. And those who argue that it does simply do not have eyes to see, and I mean that. This is beautiful. This is a beautiful dance. But the husband, as he lives in right fear of Christ, called by Christ, delegated a little slice of authority from Jesus to be the loving servant leader in his home, and the wife, who also lives in the fear of Christ, willingly submits to her husband, and this beautiful dance, really lived out, causes others to say, wait, what? What's the deal? Y'all, y'all are different. What's your story? And they might not be able to tell because they might not have the categories, but they're perplexed because no matter how dimly, no matter how imperfectly, they're looking at a little picture of Jesus and his church. And so church, let's end with this. Let's pray that our marriages more and more, by God's grace, would point people to Christ and his bride. Father, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for the way you reveal yourself to us in your word. And Lord, we pray, we continue to pray that your spirit would do that good work of taking this word that's here in this text, shining light on it so that we truly understand it and massaging it into our hearts so that we actually live it out. And Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray that For those who are married, you would grow us in having marriages that point each other and the world to Christ and the church. We pray this in his name. Amen.